Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. This week, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. And of course, if you've been coming here for a while, you may be wondering why we're not back in 1 Thessalonians. Um, again, we're, we're actually going to take a couple of weeks here. It was originally going to be one week, but I didn't feel like I could adequately cover it. Uh, there being a sense of uh, spiritual warfare going on, uh, we, we talked about it and decided that it'd be good for me to postpone a little bit out of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we will eventually get to the, the last part of the letter in 1 Thessalonians in the Holy Waiting series, but we wanted to take time to look at the idea of spiritual warfare. And again, as I studied it, I really couldn't, there was no way to get it into one week without asking you all to sit through a Puritan-length teaching. Um, and so I decided to break it into two weeks, for which there should be applause at this point. Um, so we'll have, this will be part one, not really, but then uh, next week will be part two. So again, it'll be Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. I'm going to be using the NIV this morning, uh, the 1984, largely because I've got this passage memorized, and if I try and use a different version, I'll be mixing them together. Um, so Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, you can follow along on the screens. It's also on the handout there in front of you. So hear now the words of the sovereign Lord of the universe. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, or against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This uh, past week, I've been rereading uh, for, I don't know, how many times I've read it before, The Screwtape Letters, which is a fictional work by C.S. Lewis. And if you've never read it, it is about a senior demon, Screwtape, uh, writing letters to a junior demon, his nephew demon, uh, as he calls him, named Wormwood, giving him advice on how he can work in the life of a human being that is his assignment from our father below, as he refers to Satan. And it discusses how to make war on a human being. 
And there's a lot of insights in the book as you're hearing these demons converse, or really mainly screw tape conversing with Wormwood. It's giving insights on how you can work to tempt human beings, how spiritual growth works, and therefore what you need to do as a demon to stunt that spiritual growth, and how spiritual warfare actually works. It's a whole series of these letters. It's full of amazing insight, uh, actually. And in the preface, C.S. Lewis writes a preface, but he writes it as if he had uncovered these letters. He's kind of giving you a guide to reading them. And he has this statement. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And there's incredible truth there. If you notice, and much of the book is actually filled with, it doesn't really matter whether the Christian goes to the right or to the left, as long as you get them to run into the ditch on the right or the left. Just don't want them to stay in the truth there in the center of what God would speak. And so here Lewis is telling us that there's two errors. You can get so interested in demons and what Satan is doing that, that they would be perfectly happy with that because then you're not focusing on God. But on the other hand, there's another danger, which is to disbelieve in their existence, or even more, I would put it today, to live as a materialist or to live as a naturalist, which is a far greater danger for us today. The danger in our society, in our age, is not that of the magician, as Lewis calls him. It's people who are hyper-spiritual and really looking and saying, it's rather that we act as if Satan doesn't exist, or if he does exist, his work is really irrelevant to what's going on in my life. And so we're going to, to look at the fact that what Lewis talks about in this book, and he's drawing a lot from this text here in Ephesians 6, is that much of the work that the demons are doing is actually behind the scenes. It's not that there are spirits and apparitions appearing. In fact, the, the advice from Screwtape would be, don't do that sort of thing. That makes them aware of what you're doing. Make it look as if it's just natural, everyday life. But in reality, you're behind it all, trying to work to have your way and to keep them from drawing close to God. So what we want to take a look at today is what is spiritual warfare and why is it important? Next week, we'll talk about more about how to engage it out of this same text. So let's dive into our text. First thing, then, is the reality of spiritual warfare. Notice in verses 11 to 13, Paul uses a lot of terms, all of which deal with the idea of warfare. He speaks about us putting on the armor of God. He does that in verse 11 and verse 13. He speaks about taking your stand or standing your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, and again, this is not just the word for standing up. He's talking about an army that is, that is getting ready and it's taking that, that brunt when the battle comes, when they would join, there would be this clash and the two armies would rush together. And he's saying, you stand your ground, don't give way in the face of the assault. And then... In verse 12, he speaks about our struggle here, picturing it would at least be an athletic metaphor, but in this case, it's really a metaphor for war. And all of these terms, 
And he goes on and he lays out what the armor is. And all of it is military armor, the common armor that a Roman soldier would use in that day. And all of them point to warfare. And in this case, spiritual warfare. And here's the first thing that we in our materialist age need to understand. Spiritual warfare is not a metaphor. It's the reality. Human warfare, World War II, which was happening around the time that Lewis wrote this book, that's the metaphor. That's the shadow. The prior, deeper reality is spiritual warfare. Now, why do I say that? Because Satan had rebelled against God and kicked off cosmic rebellion and warfare before human beings even existed. There was no Adam yet. So there couldn't have been human warfare, and God said, you know, I think I'll use that to describe what's been going on. No. Spiritual warfare existed before there was a humanity. The war that you and I are drawn into was going on before we were here. And so it is not a metaphor. This is like marriage. Marriage is not the reality of which Christ in the church is the metaphor or a picture of it. No, Christ in the church, Christ in the people of God is the reality. Marriage is but a picture of that. The reality is spiritual warfare that has been going on since before we were here. And all human wars are but a pale shadow of that one true war and we became part of this war in the garden of eden make no bones about it when you read genesis chapter 3 what's happening is we were drawn into the warfare which we really had no choice we were going to be drawn in unfortunately we joined the wrong side we sided with satan that is what's going on in the garden and we've been part of that warfare since the garden long before again when we are drawn in and you are reading us coming into the warfare in genesis chapter 3 there are no human armies marching across the earth that comes later as just an outgrowth of the reality of spiritual warfare and so spiritual warfare is actually satan's ongoing war against god against god's purposes and his people and every christian and every church is part of this warfare. Every one of us, when you are born, you are brought into the warfare. And when you are born again, you are doubly brought into the warfare. And when you are part of a local church, you are part of the warfare. So spiritual warfare, we need to grasp this, and I want you to think on this. I'm belaboring this a little bit because it shows how backwards we are and how materialist we are. Spiritual warfare is the prior, deeper reality of which human warfare is only a distorted shadow. And if we don't fix that in our minds, we're not going to really be able to actively engage in spiritual warfare and understand what's going on because we're always going to be looking at things from a naturalist, materialist plane. Now, what this brings out then is that Satan and his demonic forces are after every Christian and after every church. They are here and working. Verse 12 tells us, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Notice several things here in this verse. This is our struggle. The Apostle Paul is not saying, look, I'm in a struggle because I'm an apostle, and so I need you all to pray for me because I'm going out to battle. No, this is our struggle. I, the Apostle Paul, am part of this, and you unnamed, unknown Ephesian believers that are forgotten by history largely, you are part of this as well. Because to be called to God and his people is to be part of this spiritual warfare. <clears throat> and in fact, this entire passage is addressed to the whole local church. It's, Paul does not say, and so finally, I address the spiritual warriors among you. Nope, same ones of you that are told how to live in your marriages and how to treat each other in the church and how to apply God's word to your lives. All you folks that I've been talking to, I'm now talking. And in fact, some commentators have pointed out, and it really makes sense, the entire letter of Ephesians has led up to this. All the other things we're looking at in Ephesians are really <clears throat> just implications of the way God wants us to live. And if we're going to do that, spiritual warfare is going to be part of it. And so it all leads forward to the very close of the letter is all about spiritual warfare. And if you think of the terms of these spirits in the heavenly realms, that's where Paul began. The very beginning of the book is God's blessed you in the heavenly places with every blessing in Christ Jesus. He's now saying, but there's a battle going on there. There's a war going on there. And you are part of it. Every one of us is. Secondly, it's not just that we are all involved. Notice that spiritual warfare means our enemy is Satan and his forces, not humans. Your problem and my problem is not our next door neighbor. It's not a family member. It's not somebody that we're not getting along with, some political party or something. It's none of that. That's not our enemy. Our enemy is Satan and spiritual forces. That's what's always at work. And we, of all people, need to keep our eyesight on that not lowering it down. <clears throat> Far too often, we really speak and think and act as if our enemy is this other person. But it is not, according to the Apostle Paul. And so he tells us, therefore, if you notice the, this, put on your armor and stand your ground, that was verses 11 and 13, which we looked at a minute ago. And what he's telling us there is, why do you have to put on your armor and be ready to stand your ground? Well, because Satan's coming after you. You don't have to go out. This is like Romans 12, 1 and 2, which we'll look at a little bit next week, where we're told to you know, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You don't have to go looking for the world. That passage tells us the world is looking for you. It is actively trying to squeeze you into its mold, as Phillips put it. And so the question is not whether the world's going to come after you. The question is, are we going to be prepared for that? Here, the question is not whether Satan's coming after you. He is. Only question is, are you armed and ready for battle? Am I armed and ready for battle? Are we ready and able to stand our ground? We, he is going to come, so we better be ready. I won't take the time this morning, but this is common New Testament teaching. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, we're told, your enemy the devil is like a, a roaring lion. He is prowling around roaring, looking for someone to devour. You better resist him. And he tells him, be alert, be, be ready. Because this is the reality, Satan is coming. James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10 say the same thing. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. All of these speak of the reality of spiritual warfare and that we are all engaged. So please hear me on this. There is no spiritual Switzerland. Switzerland has managed 
to not be in a war since 1815. They sit there behind the Alps, and two world wars have raged all around them, and they managed to stay neutral. And Satan would rather have you and I believe nothing other than, I am spiritual Switzerland. I will stay here, and the conflict will somehow go around me. That's foolishness. It's not going to happen. Okay? Paratroopers are falling out of the sky, Switzerland, to come in. There is no hiding and missing this. There is no person or church not swept up into the spiritual war that engulfs the whole world. And in fact, the entire universe is swept into the spiritual warfare. So no one escapes. The only question is, will we be prepared? So to be prepared, the first thing we have to do before we look at the weapons and all that is understand the nature of spiritual warfare. What does spiritual warfare look like? If I said we were preparing here for physical warfare, we would all at least have some idea. It's like, well, I've seen Saving Private Ryan or I've seen some movie. Well, what does spiritual warfare look like? Because it's not like that. Well, first thing is spiritual warfare is spiritual. That's why I get the big bucks. I, I prayed and prayed and figured that out. Now, I say that, but it's because, again, we're so materialist. We, we don't think in these terms. When we think warfare, we think of the stuff going on up there with tanks rolling around and all that, but that's just the shadow. The reality is the spiritual war, and that war is spiritual. Again, Ephesians 6.12, our struggle's not against flesh and blood, against rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Uh, our enemy is not peoples or powers of this world, but rather Satan and his forces. That's where the warfare really is. So Christians cannot be lulled into materialistic, naturalistic thinking. We can't have our reality being shaped in materialist terms. And what I mean by that is a, a materialist is a person who acts as if or believes that the only thing that exists is just the material universe. There is no spiritual universe that is working. Now, what would that look like if we were doing that? Well, how it looks is if Linda and I suddenly started having marital struggles, how does a materialist approach that? Well, I would just say, suddenly Linda's being a problem. What's the problem? Or more accurately, I'm being a jerk and I need to fix myself. But the reality is marital problems may well be the work of Satan. Now, that does not absolve you and I of our part, but they may well be that Satan and his forces are constantly looking for every opportunity to exploit. And if marriage is the picture of Christ in the church, does that seem like territory he's likely to just let lay alone? It's, it's like number one thing he's after, guys. I hate to put it this way, but, but when you signed up for marriage, you said, give me some more spiritual warfare. I want some more of that. Okay? Because it's the picture of Christ in the church. And so, when there is conflict in the home, is my first thought, is Satan at work here trying to do something? And we need to be aware of spiritual warfare, or is my first thought purely naturalist, materialist thing? Is my approach any different than my unbelieving neighbor? 
To the extent it's the same, I'm probably living like a materialist while proclaiming that I'm a Christian. How about other relational conflict? That suddenly people who've been good friends for a long time, suddenly there's, there's friction and there's problems. What does the materialist think? Well, this person I've been good friends with for decades, they suddenly just turned into a jerk. Or we're just growing apart. But a Christian looks and says, is there something that the enemy is at work doing here? Is he trying to exploit something? Is he trying to break apart that which has been good and a gift of God? Um, how about my struggles with sin? Okay, I've, I've mentioned for years before that I, I've had a struggle my whole life with anger, as far back as I can remember. Now, my father, who is uh, the man I probably respect most in the world, so I, I don't want to say bad things about my dad, but but my dad does have a character flaw with anger. When, when I was a young man, and now see, now that he's in his late 70s, he doesn't have the energy to be angry anymore. But when he was younger, my dad could let it go. And I watched, my mom said one of her earliest memories of me is I was watching my dad work on something and she came out in the garage and I was, I was using sailor language as I was banging on my toy tractor because I had observed my dad, and that's what you do when you work on things. You curse a blue streak at it, and you hit it a lot, okay? Now, I can look at it and say, well, you know, my struggle with anger, my dad had an anger problem, I had an anger problem, and I can live like a materialist. Or I can say, you know, Satan is at work in that because he knows this is a spot where he's got an entrance, and so he can do something small to work in and wedge in. And what he's really after isn't even so much the anger. It's that something is going to be happening an hour from now and I'm not going to be ready for it. Right. Because I'm angry. Because some little dumb thing went on and it ticked me off. Okay? It didn't work. I know none of y'all have ever had this problem. But if you can videotape me and watch me, okay, it can, it can set me off. And... And so he's after not only the getting me angry, but he's after trying to mess with the next thing that's coming down the road. Do I recognize that? Do I see that? Or do I just think, oh, I've just got an anger problem. My dad had it. I got it. We'll just pass it on for generations. Which way do we think? Problems, uh, oh, one last area, not always, not always, please hear me on this, but sometimes even physical sickness or financial problems are due to spiritual attack. You look in the book of Job. All the stuff that's happening to Job, and the reality is Job doesn't understand it at first, and his friends are immediately looking and saying, well, there's some sin in your life, and God's after you doing anything. What they don't realize is, no, Satan is at work behind all of this that's going on. Job can't see all that. It looks like, I mean, just... A, crazy amount of disaster, but all of it looks like normal things that happen. Tornadoes do blow in. They knock over houses. People do get sick. But the reality was Satan was at work. Now, the deeper reality, and please hear me in this, is God was also at work. And God was superintending everything that went on. And one thing to remember as we go through this is Job's final state is doubly blessed. 
God is always working. God is always overruling. But Job had to come to a place of understanding what was really going on. So problems besetting a family or a church are oftentimes related to spiritual attack. And we ignore this to our own peril because if it's a spiritual battle, fleshly, worldly weapons won't work. They don't avail. They're of no use in that attack. Now, hear me on this. What this means for us and why this is important is many Christians today, many evangelicals, I'm talking real believers, many of us live like practical atheists, seeing life's events as merely natural with no spiritual cause or meaning. And being a believer, yet living like a practical atheist, is disastrous. But that's what a lot of us are doing. We, we kind of stumble through life and we live as if the overwhelming majority of what we do is just natural, everyday stuff. And we're living like a practical atheist when we do this. Christians who live as practical atheists try to fight a spiritual war with worldly wisdom and weapons and they end up getting routed by Satan. Because they don't work. It's like World War I when the Polish army showed up with horses to meet the Germans rolling in with tanks. Or the French sat secure in the Maginot Line and the Germans said, yeah, well, in mechanized warfare, we just go over it and around it. And all your preparations are no good because you got the wrong weapons. You're fighting the wrong war. And that's exactly what can happen to believers. So next week, we're going to look at how we engage in this war more closely but you first got to realize, and the first thing I'm wanting to drive home is, you are part of a cosmic spiritual war, and you cannot live like a practical atheist. And by practical, I don't mean that you, well, I don't really think God exists. No, we, a practical atheist understands that God exists, but he lives his life just like an atheist does. Because it's of, it's of no real consequence in the way I live my daily life. So when I face problems, I act just like my unbelieving neighbor does. Rather than saying, God, what are you doing here? What is working here? What is the enemy trying to do? What are you wanting to overrule to work? And how do I approach that in prayer and spiritual warfare? What does that look like? So that's the first thing. Spiritual warfare is spiritual. Second thing. Spiritual warfare includes physical aspects and outcomes. If you've been part of this church for a while, you're going to know what I'm about to say, which is we are not Gnostic. There's a big difference. Christianity and Gnosticism are so different, and that fight that was fought in the early church is still here. The Gnostics want to say either spiritual or physical. They're always separate. They don't relate to one another. They're in these separate uh, self-contained little pots, and there's no mixing between the two. Christianity says, no, it's not that way. Jesus is fully divine and he's fully man. You and I are both body and spirit. And spiritual warfare includes, it is a spiritual warfare, but it includes and affects very physical things. Now, one way we can tell this from our text, notice how Paul concludes as he's leading up in this spiritual warfare. It concludes in verses 19 and 20 with prayer for him. And he says, I want you to pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may de declare it fearlessly as I should. All of this talk about spiritual warfare and what does it end up with the request? 
that I would preach the gospel boldly, that I would open my mouth, I would be clear in my proclamation, I would make it known. Well, that's a very physical thing. Maybe you could just, well, Paul, maybe study a little bit more. You know, get a little backbone there, Paul. But Paul realizes this is spiritual warfare that's going on here. I'm in chains because of this spiritual warfare. And I need you to be praying for me and supporting me that I would do this, what appears to be a very physical act, but it actually is not. Again, we won't turn there, but if you remember, this is one of the differences between Paul and some of the fake leaders in the church. In Corinth, he said, look, our message and our wisdom aren't with with human wisdom. I mean, our message and our words aren't with human wisdom, but they're a demonstration of the Spirit's power because we don't want your faith to rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And he's saying, the other guys are coming in and they've got all of this human wisdom and all these methodologies. That's not where our faith lies because this proclamation of the gospel, this being shaped spiritually, is not about worldly methods and wisdom. It's about a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so even though Paul's doing, he's speaking just like the other people are speaking. He's saying, you don't understand, we're coming from two different sources. And, but what is spiritual works out into the physical. And so the spiritual warfare here had a physical goal, bold physical proclamation of the gospel. And so it includes this physical aspect because spiritual warfare engages our entire being, body and soul, mind, will, and emotions, and it includes both spiritual practices and physical actions. Okay, it does. Just to try to do spiritual warfare. If you say, I'm going to do some spiritual warfare at like 11.15 tonight as I'm laying down under the covers, I'm going to predict that's not going to work. Why am I predicting that? Because the physical actions you are taking are going to disengage you spiritually. We are not Gnostic. We ought to all print that up and stick it on your mirror every day. We are not Gnostic. Spiritual and physical go together. And so spiritual warfare will alter spiritual realities and then we'll have visible physical effects. If there's spiritual warfare going on in my family and I engage in that and God hears and works and changes, it's going to be broken in the spirit realm first, but then it's going to show up that I'm going to stop saying lousy things to my wife. I'm going to start working rightly with my children. I'm going to start being a better employee or whatever the physical thing that has been going on, it's going to show up in that way. So the spiritual power causing relational conflict is broken And then peace returns to the relationship. The power enslaving us and trapping us in a sin is broken and we're able to take steps to walk in righteousness so that we no longer live under the dominion of sin. And so it's not an either or. It's not, well, I do spiritual warfare and I've been an alcoholic, I do spiritual warfare, but I'm going to keep hanging out with my buddies down at the bar. No. No, you're going to do spiritual warfare to break that, and part of that spiritual warfare is going to include no longer hanging out with my buddies down at the bar. But it's not going to be just that, because if I do that, all I end up doing is just finding another outlet for that sin. It has to be both. It's not either or, it is both and. Thirdly, spiritual warfare is not only spiritual, but has physical aspects and outcomes. Spiritual warfare is both individual and corporate. It is both. 
Verse 11, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now we have to put ourselves back in the days of Rome. There is a little difference here in our modern warfare. But we're being commanded to gear up for warfare. Who put the armor on? The entire army or an individual soldier? Individual soldier has to put the armor on. You, you could not gear up the entire army. An individual soldier had to wear their, army, uh, their armor. But the interesting thing is, the commands here are plural. Put on is not just each of you individually, it's all of you put on your armor. All the commands in this entire section are plural commands. Because this is one of the errors we fall into. Well, I wake up in the morning and I do spiritual warfare and I wrestle with the demons controlling Africa and, you know, that, that's, that's hyper-individualistic. We individually put on our armor, but we together engage in warfare. And this is because Roman armor only worked if you fought as a group. The whole way the armor was designed is all of the shields interlocked with one another. They even did a thing when the arrows came in. Uh, they, they, the word was testudo, which meant turtle. And they... They hunkered down and they build a big turtle shell of all of their shields together. Because if you were out there on your own, guess what happened to you? You got shot. You got pierced with arrows. If you've ever watched the movie Gladiator, you can remember this. When they went out into the arena and they realized that they were there to be sacrificial lambs, their job was to die in the arena. But the main guy, played by Russell Crowe, had been a general. He started barking out orders and told everybody, stay here and do what I'm telling you. Here's how you fight chariots in formation. Come here. And he told them, nobody run. Well, a couple of guys got up and ran, and what happened to those individuals? They died. They had the same armor, but the armor only works if you fight together. And so spiritual warfare is both individual and it's corporate. Satan attacks individuals, he attacks families, he attacks churches, and we have to fight as individuals, as families, and as a church. That's what God's call for us is. So we're going to be having this evening of prayer and worship on July the 21st, and probably after that, because there's not only an individual aspect to spiritual warfare, we are called to do warfare together with one another and for one another. Because whenever you're in battle, and this, is, this shows up in the shadow that is human warfare, there are periods of time where one unit is really under duress. And does the rest of the army just sit back and say, too bad for you guys? Or do we rush over there to reinforce? You rush and reinforce. That's what you do. And so the same thing is true in spiritual warfare. Last thing, and then we'll apply the word. Spiritual warfare is both defensive and offensive, okay? You could hear what I'm saying so far and just leave it that we're all hunkered down and, oh my gosh, I hope this passes, but that, that's not the point, okay? Spiritual warfare is both defensive and offensive. So the, the picture in verses 13, 14, and 17 here, we're told, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. Okay, just with that right there, what verb is Paul interested in us getting? Stand, okay? You don't have to get a PhD from seminary to figure that out. Stand. Well, what's the picture? 
It's when the unit was together, our shields were locked, and they come and they bang into us and they hit us and we stand. Even when the cavalry comes on the horses, we stand against them. That's a defensive posture. We are bearing the attack. So the unit is withstanding it together. The armor is there because it protects you from the assault of the enemy. That's what it's doing. You've got a helmet and you've got a breastplate and you've got all of these parts that are there to protect you from the enemy. But once you repel that attack, what does the army do? You go back on the offensive is what you do. You don't, the whole point is being on the offensive. Sometimes, even when you're on the offensive, you have to stop and take the attack, but then you go back on the offensive. And that's absolutely what we're called to do. And that's why in verse 17, he says you've got the the, uh, sword of the spirit, because the sword is used actually, not primarily defensively, but primarily offensively. It is to slash out and attack. And this is picked up even more in Paul's terms in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll just briefly look at that text this morning. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, beginning at verse 3, says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. This is spiritual war. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. It's literally, they're not the weapons of the flesh. But rather, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The picture here, so often we look at this and we think that it's like there's strongholds and it's this defensive thing, but it's actually offensive. We're after the strongholds that Satan has, and we are taking things captive. Notice here what we're taking captive is thoughts, because we're not Gnostic, spiritual, physical are together. So we're going to see this next week. Your thought life is one of the primary spiritual battlegrounds. And so is mine. Spiritual warfare happens right here. A huge part of it. And if you lose that battle, you can proclaim all kinds of other things. You're going to lose. You're going to lose if you lose that one. And so Paul says we're going to take captive every thought. We're taking captive here. This is the same picture as Matthew 18. Sometimes Christians understand where Jesus said that, you know, the the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we picture it almost like the city gates are up marching at us. Is that what city gates do? No. No. Who's on the attack in that verse? We're on the attack. Satan is under siege. And so the call in spiritual warfare is not simply defensive. Our spiritual warfare, our prayers, and our service are not just defensive. They are offensive. It means we are after his territory. He still thinks, foolishly, somehow he's going to win this battle. And he is not. And we are not here to make a truce. We are not here to be spiritual Switzerland and be neutral. We are not here to hunker in and just try and be protected behind my walls. That's a bunch of ridiculous garbage. That is not what the church is here for. We are God's army, and we are called to penetrate into the darkness that envelops Annapolis, that envelops Central Maryland, that envelops this entire planet. That's what we are here to do. And so spiritual warfare is not just, oh, I'm getting attacked and I've got to sit back here and do that. 
That's part of what goes on in battle, but it is about we are here to counterattack. We are here to rush at them, and it is critical. I may talk about this more next week. I remember as a young Marine at TBS, it's the strangest thing. You're walking down a road, and we would practice getting ambushed. And so you're walking down the road, and if I'm walking down a path here, and suddenly I get attacked, and I realize the attack's coming from over here, where am I supposed to run? There. What does every instinct in you want to do? Well, guess how far bullets go? You are not going to outrun them. Your only hope is running to the battle, running to your enemy and engaging them directly. Death lies in retreat. Life lies in engaging in the fight. And that is based on that, because that's the reality of spiritual warfare. That's what we're called to do. We are to go back on the offensive. And I want to encourage us as we're going through this season, and some of me, my Marine Corps is going to come through here, I am not interested in defensive battles. I am interested in attack. We are here for a purpose. We are called by God for this time. And 85% of the people in this county this morning are not gathering for worship. 85%. That's not just a foreign shore. That's here. You and I are on mission here. And we need to realize that and not sit back and be satisfied. It doesn't matter if every seat in this place was full. 85%. We need to run to the battle. There are homeless people. There are people being sexually abused. There are young women being deceived into abortion. There are people trapped in every sort of sin, every sort of vile conduct that is deforming and defacing the very image of God. And we need to run to that. And there is no spiritual Switzerland. It doesn't exist. So how do we apply this? We'll talk more next week about the specifics of the battle. How do we apply this today? It's obviously just one easy question. Do I understand the reality of spiritual warfare? Do I understand that? And again, I, we live in such a materialist world. Don't deceive yourself and think, well, I'm a Christian. I've been raised in the church. I know these things are realities. How are you and I living during the week. Because if we don't understand this, we can't engage in the battle. Scripture is full of spiritual warfare. In many ways, next to God, it is the ultimate reality of this present order. It is all around us. So, do I live as a Christian or a practical atheist? Do I live as a Christian or a practical atheist. Now, I, I described being a practical atheist a few minutes ago. I want to take that question and turn it a little bit. Here's how I can tell. Do I realize Satan is real and that he wants to steal, kill, and destroy every good thing I have and love? He, he, he is not our friend. Okay, we have this on the authority of Jesus. The thief comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. That, that's what he's here to do. If there's a way he can steal, kill, and destroy from you, he's going to. Do I think Satan wants me to 
Well, there's this guy and he's trying to raise his children up in the ways of the kingdom. I'll just pass that by. Or does he say, I want to steal, kill, and destroy? Does, does he want my marriage to prosper? Does he want relationships within the church to prosper? Or does he want to steal, kill, destroy? Another way of looking at the question. When problems arise and things seem to be stolen, killed, destroyed, do I consider spiritual causes or just natural causes? Now again, Lewis's thing, you know, there's that, there's that danger in the other ditch of living like a magician and everything is a demon under every rock. But friends, that, that is not the problem in our culture. That is not the problem in our age. The, the, we are perilously close to the ditch over here where I just live like a practical atheist. As an evangelical believer, that I live right there in practical atheism. So when these things are going on, do I consider spiritual causes or do I just get irritated at the thing that's happening? Do I just try and figure out some natural way to work around this? Or does it, do I hear it and see it as a beckon and a call to prayer? Do I see it as God, what God is doing here is he is saying, get on your knees, seek me, cry out to me. Which way do I go? Because the more I am simply the natural causes, I'm living like a practical atheist. That, let that question sink in, because I want to tell you as a pastor, I find myself living like a practical atheist sometimes. And my first go-to being figuring out something that's just the weapons of the flesh. Another way of looking at this question, all turning around this thing of being a practical atheist. Do I turn to God in serious prayer for family, work, relational, financial, or health issues, or do I just seek a natural solution? Do I, do I have any sense of engaging in spiritual warfare? Now, is, if I've got a health issue, should I go to a doctor? Yeah, doctors are awesome. They're a gift of God to us. Should I do it as a practical atheist? Who is the healer? Jesus is. John Piper, who had cancer a few years ago, actually wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Because Piper's point was, if you have cancer, know that God is at work. God has something he wants to accomplish in this, but a practical atheist just says, I just hope to get through this and come out the other side. But if we understand spiritual warfare, we say, God, what are you working? I know the enemy is working to do this. I'm Joseph. I'm sitting in prison here. I was unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife. I was sold into slavery by my brothers. And this is just an awful deal. And how am I going to work this to get out of jail? But if we're not a practical atheist, I'm sitting there saying, what in the world is God doing? And then suddenly when your brothers stand before you, what do you realize? I know what God is doing. I know why God brought me here. I know what has happened here. And this has been tough. This has been difficult. But I didn't live as a practical atheist. I was aware. I was praying. I was seeking God. Now I understand. See, that's the difference between the two things. Last question for us on this, and we'll close in prayer. Do I do spiritual warfare for the church? 
because we don't fight as individuals. We, we like movies here in America. This is the thing. We like superhero movies, right? Where one guy goes out and he does all of the stuff, you know, and the one guy can go out and do jujitsu and he fights 50 people and I never understand why one of them doesn't just like pull out a gun and shoot him from 30 feet away. It makes for good Hollywood movies. It does not make for real life. It's not how spiritual warfare works. We are called to a battle together. Do I consistently pray for the church? And that means the church as a whole, BRCC, but also the individual people because the church is not this building. It is not this property. It is not the organization. It's you and me. When I think Bay Ridge, I'm thinking Greg and Karen, Marty and Mary, Donnie and Myrtle, Tony and Joy. That's Bay Ridge. It's not the organ. All that other stuff doesn't matter. Are we in warfare for one another? When we see folks going through things, do we just kind of sit around and talk about it, think about it, say, I'd rather think about something more pleasant? Or do I say, I'm getting on my knees. I am crying out to Jesus until this thing breaks. Is my first thought, I wonder if I can give him a piece of advice about how to handle this. Or is my first thought, I am crying out to God for you. Which way do I turn? Because one is spiritual warrior. One is practical atheist. I want to encourage you, if you can, the 21st, we're going to come here and not be practical atheists. We want to come here and we want to gather together. People listening to this by tape are probably wondering what kind of a church we are. It's a church full of practical atheists, apparently. Uh, it's because we're in a Christianity full of practical atheists in the West. It's the temptation and the struggle. I want to encourage you, if you can, be here on the 21st so we can gather, we can worship, we can pray, and we can cry out to God, and we can regularly continue to do this. So we're going to, uh, let's go ahead and stand together, and we're going to close. And I, I want us to be aware. Look, Bay Ridge is, is experiencing some of this warfare. When you go into warfare, there are times where there's lulls, and then there's times where the battle is on you. Okay, and both of them are there. We seem to be in a season where there's been more attack. If you've been paying attention, there are people with physical sicknesses and attacks. And sometimes we just don't know what's going on. We're seeking doctor's care, we're doing all that, but there just seems to be enough of it going on that we want to cry out about that. There are family and relational pressures and strains that are going on. These are consistently going on, but there seems to be enough of a pattern that we're sensing something. There's increased temptation and struggles with sin. And many people have sensed this. It's not just the elders. I had somebody talking to me a couple of weeks ago and was broaching the subject. And, and we'd even had, this is one of the problems, we'd had miscommunication between us because they had thought I didn't even believe in the reality of spiritual warfare. And I was like, I've been awake like almost every night doing spiritual warfare. I'm fully convinced it's real. And just had a conversation with one of the other elders about this, and we're stopping the current series, okay? But they were hearing the same thing. They were seeing and sensing the same thing. So we need to join in prayer with one another, for one another, crying out to Jesus. And I again want to remind you, this is not, we're hunkered down and we're just hoping to make through. That's baloney and garbage. If that's what you want, I'll just go ahead and tell you, you should find a different congregation. Because that's not who we are going to be. We are going to engage in this, and we're going to be on the attack. We are going to take the battle to the enemy. Not because we're great, because we're not, but because Christ has already won the victory. He has already accomplished this. The Lamb has overcome. 
And so we are going to go forth fully arrayed into battle for him. Amen? Amen. We're going to close now with prayer and then a word of benediction. Father, we are aware as we look at your word of how often our thinking and our understanding falls short. Father, we are so tempted to live like a practical atheist. We are so tempted to view this world and our natural everyday things as the reality and heaven and its realities is kind of the shadow off out there. But Father, we live and dwell in the shadow lands. You are the reality. And Father, there is an enemy that has been fighting against you and your purposes and your people since long before we were here. And Father, we do not want to be ignorant of that. Lord, I pray for every one of us this week that you would increase our understanding and reality. And Lord, when the enemy is at work, when he is trying to exploit something and to establish or to exploit a stronghold, Father, when he is doing that and we are being tempted to respond by being a practical atheist, by going to our trademark move and doing whatever we do to deal with that, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw us up and say, is that the way you're going to respond? Is that all there is to this? Father, I pray you would open our eyes. I pray, oh God, that we would be not those who would live as practical atheists, but those who would be engaged in warfare. Father, I pray for every family who this week there is tension and struggle. I pray that rather than bickering and arguing, rather than getting angry and hollering at the kids, Father, I pray that it would cause us to say, wait a minute, what is going on here? I recognize something happening, and I'm going to engage in spiritual warfare rather than physical arguing. Father, I pray if there is sickness that is going on, Father, if it is related to this, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would break the power of that thing. Lord God, we pray for physical health for those who have been struggling, Lord God. You are the healer, Lord. You can send a word and heal. Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord. I pray that you would break it. Father, I pray that more than anything, they would hear your voice. Lord, we realize in this fallen, broken world, we don't always get the things we want. We don't always see the healing. But God, if we can just hear your voice, if we can just know. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would give them wisdom and insight and show them, Lord, what you are at work doing. And Lord, we pray for our congregation. Father, we sense that the enemy is trying to hit, Lord God. But Father, I feel like it's because we are trying to be on the offensive and he's trying to get us to stop, to distract us. God, I pray you would allow us to rise up, to put our shields up, to quench his flaming arrows, and then to raise the battle cry and to go back on the offensive. God, I pray you would show us where we are called here in this area. Lord, I pray you would give us favor. Father, I pray that we would be able to carry the gospel to all parts here in this community throughout Central Maryland, and Father, continue carrying it around the globe. Father, we ask that by your grace you would sustain us. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, Father, we proclaim the enemy may hit us, but we are not disengaging from mission. 
We are not going to stop. We are going to stay engaged as your people, Lord, doing your work. And Father, we say this not because we are great, but because Jesus is great. Not because we overcome, but because the Lamb has overcome. Father, He has done this for us, and He has given it to us, this victory as our gift. So Father, we thank You for that. Lord, we pray that You would do all of this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to conclude with a benediction out of Romans 16. Receive the blessing and power of God. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.